7.05 and another huge one on tap for you tonight. It's time for Iron Sports, <clears throat> 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and you know, Ira, it's that time of year, and we were just talking uh, off air. You've only got a couple of weeks left where it's all this chaos going on in the world of sports. Multiple uh, playoff runs going on. We've got the, the best of golf um, going on. This is the time that you really need to be paying attention and being into it because in a couple of weeks is not going to be nearly as much to follow. Oh, no, I mean, you got the NHL playoffs, NBA playoffs. You have this French Open, which we're going to talk about, which might be epic, uh, you know, final week of the French Open. You have the U.S. Open starting next week in, in golf because they moved the schedule up. I mean, it's after in two weeks, it's baseball and maybe Wimbledon and the British Open, and there's really not much going on. And you also had... This week, the heavyweight champion of the world, a uh, 25 to 30 to 1 favorite, and one of the biggest upsets in the history of boxing, that happened this week. So there's everything is going on. It's super exciting. I just, I, mean, I can't wait to get, let's start going in the show and talk about because there's just so much sports. And as someone like me who follows all these sports, uh, it's just a great time of year. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk about um, the whole Andy, Andy Ruiz versus uh, um, Anthony Joshua fight because that was crazy. Um, we've got a lot to talk about tonight, though, and two great guests to help us out. First up, it's Kelly Pavlik. Been on the show before. Ira, tell us about him. Uh, middleweight, former middleweight champion of the world. One of the greatest middleweights of all time. Uh, he's going to come in and break down the Diaz-Joshua fight. And then we're going to have Michael Averone, who we had on before, uh, former owner of Big Brown. And he's going to talk about the Belmont uh, that's coming up this week in, in New York. So it's, uh, we got boxing, some of the old-time sports boxing and horse racing. You know, it's funny. This Belmont stakes, I think this is going to be a perfect show for Mikey Averone because – not only do I think it's wide open, I don't think the favorites are very good. So I think this is going to be your opportunity to make some money uh, this Saturday on the Belmont Stakes. Mikey of Verone fills us in on that at 7.55. And like we said, Kelly Pavlik breaks down the fight at 7.45. It's 7.07. It's Iron Sports. Ira, where are you right now? Because you're not in studio with me. I'm in Los Angeles, uh, getting ready to go on Wednesday to see Golden State, Toronto, uh, up in up in San Francisco or Oakland. Uh, but I saw the Dodger game last night and yesterday, and then before the NBA game, uh, Dodgers beat the Phillies eight nothing behind Rich Hill. Uh, it was sort of a matchup between the Dodgers and Phillies, the two best teams in the National League. Dodgers swept them uh, with 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 it and their their injuries like the Yankees they're playing with their second team mostly <laughs> and they still beat the second best team in 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 the National League. Uh, Bryce Harper was interesting to go to the game and see Bryce Harper get he was 0 for four got booed every time he came up to bat and uh, the Dodgers they won on Saturday they bring up a catcher from the minor leagues named Will Smith which is great because Will Smith of course is big with Philadelphia and he hits a home run uh, it seems like the Dodgers can do no wrong they just are 41 and 19 people in LA don't think they have even played well and they're seven games ahead of the next best team Milwaukee and even the, the Phillies in the National League so as I, we have talked about before the Dodgers are going to run away with this the Dodgers are going to be in the World Series and let's see for the third year in a row and see what happens but it was love going to Dodger Stadium, love going to the games. And uh, while we're on it, the other baseball series this weekend was Yanks in Boston. So we're at the sports bar watching the Bruins, watching all the things. Watching, mm -hmm. And then at the same time, the Yankees are taking two out of three out of Boston. The Yankees are playing their third team. They really don't. <laughs> they have every starter is hurt. Um, and they still take two out of three out of Boston. Uh, pretty just amazing. And, and they're, but they're getting healthy. D.G. Gregorius is coming back. Aaron Judge might be coming back. I mean, if you look at the Yankees this year, uh, they have their their they have the second best record in the American League. They're leading the Red Sox by eight games. But Stanton had 38 home runs last year. None. 
this year. Andahar, 27 home runs, none this year. Aaron Hicks, 27 home runs last year, one this year. Judge had 27, five this year. Gregorius, 27, none. They still have more home runs at this point this year than they did last year. That's how <laughs> great this team is. Luke Voigt, uh, everybody, anybody they can put in there, it's just unbelievable. If you just put anybody off the street in a Yankee uniform and they're hitting home runs and they're winning, and uh, it was, uh, if you're a Red Sox fan, you're nervous. Chris Sale lost on Friday. He's 1-7. I mean, he's a guy just signed this multi-hundred million dollar contract, and he's 1-7 this year, and he was your superstar that won the, the World Series. But it's a long season. The Red Sox are really just playing for the wild card, get in there and do it. But uh, it was it was it was something that the Boston fans they were they're upset about the baseball, but very happy about the hockey. You know, Ira, um, three things I'll say about my New York Yankees. And I'm a diehard Yankee fan, but I'm very realistic. One, anybody who's ever said a bad thing about Brian Cashman needs to have their head examined. Because like you said, he finds guys, you know, Luke Voigt was cast off by a bunch of teams. DJ LeMahieu, they got for nothing in free agency. Nobody wanted the guy. He plugs these guys in and gets the best out of them. Also, good job not giving up on Gary Sanchez. He was pitiful last year. Just absolutely awful. They said, you know what? You're our catcher. It doesn't matter. He's completely turned it around. And he's, you know, his power threat is what's propelling this offense with Luke Voigt uh, batting behind him, also getting balls in three. It's become apparent to me Clint Frazier is going to be the odd man out of this group. Um, they, they've been talking, you know, they've, they've got such a wealth of talent in the minors that it's going to come time to make a deal. Clint Frazier's bat is on display and he looks great, but he's a liability in the outfield. Made a couple of boneheaded plays over the weekend. So you, now you've got a guy whose stock is through the roof. I'm not going to be surprised at all, Ira, if Frazier is the guy who gets moved for a big time pitcher, you know, come, come the deadline and the Yankees are looking to make a move. Well, there's also pitchers that are out there like Dallas Keuchel that they can sign for free agents in a week and not have to give up a draft pick. So there's teams like what's happening with the Yankees and Dodgers is you have two teams that have, have, of course, more money than any other team. But now they're run, like Andrew Freeman and the Dodgers and how the Yankees are run. You don't have Steinbrenner meddling and things like that. So they're run intelligently, making the right decisions. So when you have all the money in the world and you're smart making those decisions, then you have these great baseball teams, and that's what they both are. And it is, it is. Uh, it, I tell you what, I was at the sports bar. The, the Yankee, you know, Yankee fans are very excited about this year. Now it'll be interesting when all these players come back. Are they going? They're not going to win every single game they play, <laughs> but I think Yankee fans think that they're going to win every. When everybody's healthy, they won't lose ever again for the rest of the year. Yeah, and we haven't had our ace, Luis Severino. You know, everyone talks about the hitters and how we would need pitching where they would need pitching. Luis Severino, our our ace going into the season, hasn't even pitched yet. So uh, a lot to be excited about if you. You're a Yankee fan. Anything else you want to touch on in baseball, I, or you want to slide over to the NBA Finals? No, next week we're going to have time. Maybe next week we're going to break down who's we're, we're some of the other other big series and stuff. But uh, let's move on, let's move on to basketball because that was certainly. I mean, I have never. Uh, I, I, I think I held my breath for about 30 minutes at the game last last night because it was just tremendous. It, I love watching the NBA. I love the NBA Finals. I love two teams playing at a high level like they were at the end of the game. The excitement, everything. It's great. Great, great theater, great sports, great everything. I'm in a bar in, uh, in, uh, in West Hollywood. It's packed full of fans. Everyone's into the game. There's half Toronto fans, half Golden State fans. Everyone's screaming. Tremendous. Uh, I was going to ask, is the Golden State fan base pretty uh, prevalent in L.A.? There's haters. The people that don't, the people that are rooting for Toronto are the Golden State haters. Yeah. So they're not really Toronto fans. They're just haters. So Golden State is this team that you either that you love them or hate them, sort of like the Heat were a little bit. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so it really is not Toronto Canadian fan base. It's more people just don't like Golden State. Absolutely. Um, you know, Ira. 
after game one, you said on this show probably seven weeks ago that Pascal Siakam is going to become, you know, MVP caliber player, that he's going to be a household name. After game one, I was like, man, Ira really nailed this as uh, Siakam is, is, I think, 14 for 17 shooting in that game, and Toronto looked good. I was sure Toronto was going to be able to win both those games. That wasn't the case, but let's go back to, uh, to the first game. This was just... Uh, great display by everyone on Toronto to pick up the ball and pick up the slack when uh, when Kawhi was basically just stifled by Golden State. Well, I mean, they they played each other twice during the regular season. Golden State, Toronto won both games, and Toronto won in Golden State actually when Durant had fifty one points. Uh, but there's no Green and no Curry. I sort of threw out the regular season uh, matchups, but Siakam had two good games when they played there. So I felt like, and they played in, in, when they won in Toronto and when they were in Golden State. Uh, so you look like maybe he's going to have a have a fairly, uh, you know, but he came on the scene. I mean, 14 of 17 shooting was just crazy. One of the greatest debuts, I think, in the history of the NBA. Uh, but it was interesting before the games and little notes. Uh, Drake was wearing Dell Curry's uh, uh, Toronto jersey <laughs> yeah. because at one point Dell played in Toronto, and so Drake thought that was uh, you know getting under Stephen uh, Curry's skin. But uh, you know at the, there were some issues with Green and Drake, and they made a, the media made a big deal about it. But then they're out to dinner, like they're friends. Like it, as I said, I didn't really think the Drake factor was going to be much of an issue, like it was against Milwaukee because Golden State they play in front of celebrities all the time. They've been doing it forever. They're not really intimidated by Drake on the sideline. Uh, but uh, the key to the game was, I mean, you heard this coming out, does Golden State need Durant? Do they need him? Are they better than him? They just swept Portland in four games. Uh, do they need him? And the first game, they sort of looked like they needed him. I mean, they, they, I think Golden State, Toronto, this is the first time that in Golden State series, in 20 series, the first time in five years actually went, besides Houston, they went on the road. So they were playing two games on the road, then back to Golden State, because Toronto had a one game, they won one more game than Golden State did Mm -hmm. during the regular season. But uh, it, during the game, it was interesting. Siakam at the beginning looked lost. And I was turning to people saying, boy, I don't think Siakam is used to this. He, he turned the ball over twice. Uh, he he uh, Green drew a charge on him. But he really settled down. And uh, the Raptors took a lead in the first quarter. And, uh, and the Warriors stopped shooting. I mean, they were just awful, shooting 30%. They had five. To, the turnovers for the game for the Warriors that first game, 16 for the game. It seems like they were just into the game the whole time. And it was interesting in the second quarter, but Golden State's been resting. We, we talked about this last week. Are they going to put, are they going to have Curry, Thompson, and Green play 45 minutes of the game to make up for the fact Durant's out? But no, they play direct row. They put first signing a, a Boogie Cousins, uh, Quinn Cook, Sean Livingston. They played, they came in, and they kept that line in, in, in for four minutes. Uh, but, uh, you know, Clay had a three at the end of the middle of the second period. Take it up 41-40. And after that, it was, uh, it was all done because Toronto went on a 19-8 lead, 19-8 uh, run. They led by 10 at halftime. Golden State was just awful, super lazy. And then when the uh, third quarter, you're like, okay, this is the third quarter. This is the quarter that the Warriors come back in. This is what they do. And they didn't. They, made, they really they, they cut three points off the lead. Uh, Siakam was amazing, and Leonard. They had 24 points between them. The rest of the team had five. Siakam was making circus shots, three-point shots, everything. And uh, then the Raptors ended the game with a 10-1, 10-1, 10 points to one uh, run. 
Uh, and it was just, it was all over. It was, a, it was, a, it was just, it, the Warriors just could not make that run. It was like that horse, like in a horse race, you're waiting for the horse to make that charge at the end. They just could never get it cut. I mean, I think they cut it to seven points uh, in the fourth uh, quarter, and, and that was it. I mean, Curry had 34 points uh, on, um, uh, Curry, Curry had 34 points. Uh, uh, Clay had 21. Uh, Green had a triple-double, double, but he didn't shoot well. And the bench played well, but the turnovers killed him. They only shot 44%. And, of course, Siakam, 32 points. Uh, Leonard, 23 points. Uh, and Gasol. See, I said before the game, I said, uh, Marc Gasol is not going to be a factor because Draymond Green, they're just going to run. They're going to run. Marc Gasol's slow. He's tall. He'll be out of the game. But they didn't run. I really think, if I'm going to analyze that game one, I think the Warriors were lazy. They just didn't run. They, did, they didn't push the, the, the pace of the game. They didn't get back on defense. And Steve Kerr said the same thing. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, he, he made a great comment. Kerr said, in sports, it's always easier to be the chaser than the chased. And in the Raptors, is a likable opponent that has never been here before. And it seemed that, you know, it's, it just seemed like they, the Raptors were chasing and passing the Warriors that game. They were, they were hustling more. They wanted it more. And that's why they go up one nothing. And then, of course, you know, prisoner of the moment, you know, they need Durant. The world's coming to end. The Warrior <laughs> dynasty is over. Oh, it's 7.18. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. 7.45, Kelly Pavlik joins us to discuss everything happening with boxing. Huge upset over the weekend. And then Mike Iavarone joins us at 7.55. He's going to talk about the Belmont Stakes. Try to make you a little bit of money on that. So, Ira, you're right. It was the world. You know, the sky is falling uh, on Golden State's world. You were right, though. You were waiting all of Game 1. For them to do that Warriors 20-4 to run that they always go on in the third quarter just didn't happen. Then, you know, last night in Game 2, they did get a little bit of better breaks. Let's talk about that. Well, they had, when you go on an 18 to run, I mean, it was almost like the Raptors said, we know the Warriors do this run on the third period. We know they can do that. <laughs> yep. But it, it didn't happen the first game, so it's not going to happen now. But, boy, it's the Warriors. I mean, first of all, what's, Steve Kerr is underrated. He has uh, four titles in five years. He is, uh, uh, he, is, he is definitely, I mean, he's, he's just, he's very smart. He is tremendous, and he, and he just, and he made changes. He's not afraid. He starts Cousins, and I thought that was probably the good move because Gasol was destroying them. So why not put a big guy on him, not put Cousins in the game? And Cousins only played eight minutes the first game, but he got his legs, he got his conditioning back a little, and boy, did Cousins play great. I mean, when they signed Cousins last year, we were saying, oh, that's an, it's an ornament, it's another thing they need, they have so many players. But boy, that's what shows you in basketball. You don't know when injuries happen, you don't know when you're going to need someone, and he played fantastic. And uh, you saw at the beginning of the game, Gasol goes and he drew a foul right on Gasol. Like Gasol charged right into him. And Clay Thompson, though, first scored the first 11 points. I mean, uh, everyone says Steph Curry is like he's dehydrated. It looked like something he was like going to pass out on the court. But it was, it was lucky that uh, Thompson was scoring so well. And uh, it was close. But then Toronto, at the end of the first quarter, again goes on this 10 nothing run. They were up 37-28, just like the first game. Uh, but then... Curry started hitting some threes, so he wasn't totally dehydrated. But they're still down at halftime, 54 to 59. And it looked like, you know, just exactly like the last game. Uh, it was just a weird thing. Also, uh, but then suddenly in the second half, 18 to nothing run. Um, Iguodala, they put a team to me in the second half. They put Igadala on Siakam. 
And I think Siakam had a lot of trouble with Andre Godala guarding him. He said, he, and then they put Draymond Green and Clay uh, uh, Lowry, and I think Lowry, I mean, the size difference was like eight or nine inches, but Lowry seemed to have trouble with that, and Lowry ended up uh, fouling out of the game. And then Igadala made some big threes. And we talked about Igadala's three at the end of the game. He had three earlier in the game, and Clay Thompson was hitting threes. And there was this one play on that 18 nothing run when Draymond Green just blew by Leonard. Like, they were on the top of the key, and Leonard is, like, the greatest defender in the league, the best player since Jordan, all this stuff. Draymond Green just blew right by him, just one-on-one. And I'm like, boy, that, that's, that's tremendous. Cousins was playing great. Then they bring Bogut in for Cousins, and everyone remembers like, all these dunks that they kept throwing to Andrew Bogut and doing that. Um, they outscored Toronto. Warriors outscored them 34-21 in the third. They had 14 baskets, 14 assists. And then um, then Quinn Cook comes in the fourth period and hits two big threes. Just when you thought Toronto was going to stop that run, make that run, because they weren't up by a million points. They were up by 10 points. And then Quinn Cook hits some shots. But eight minutes ago, Clay goes out with a hamstring. I mean, he's injured. And you're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, they have no one. They don't have Durant. They don't have Clay Thompson. They're playing Quinn Cook from Duke, who I, I like to Duke, but I don't know if he's expecting to be in the finals. He hardly played during the season. But then Lowry fouls out of the game. Uh, but but DeMarcus Cousins ended the game with 10 rebounds, but it seemed like he was just like whenever the ball was bouncing around, he seemed to be making the plays, the passes. And this was the game DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, you got to give him credit. He, he pulled his quad. People thought he was done for the whole playoffs. He comes back. He worked. And, uh, and here's a player that has a lot of criticism. Had a bad attitude, technicals, all the talent in the world. But you got to give him credit for working his way back in shape, wanting to be in the finals, and going to Steve Kerr saying, hey, use me however you need. You're going to play 48, I play 48. You're going to play 8, I'll play 8. Um, and, and that's what happened. Now, and the, but the Warriors still almost blew the game. They had, um, it was like 106-98. Both teams sort of missed everything for like three minutes. And then they were leading 106-101. And... Uh, um, and Leonard drove in. He got a. He scored a basket, and they called this horrendous tee. Curry was mad. He just threw the ball in the air. Te- a technical foul on Curry. So that made it 106-101. But uh, but then they were able. But then at the end of the game, the Danny Green comes down for. Uh, well, it was actually Van Fleet missed. Leonard missed, and Green hit a three, cutting it to 106-104 with like 27, 20 seconds left. You saw Nick Nurse, the Toronto coach, calling for a timeout, like a not timeout, but to foul, because he realized that if you just let the Warriors run the clock out, they would have no time left. But he, he called for a foul, but they wouldn't foul, and it was a mess. I mean, and I give the Warriors credit. The Warriors didn't call timeout themselves. They said, look, we have Curry. We have Iguodala. We have smart people know what to do with the ball. Livingston was in the game. We're not calling a timeout. And I love that's what the Jordan and the Bulls used to do. They never used to call timeouts at the end of the game because they said, we're smarter than everyone else. And uh, Livingston made a great save. Curry threw the ball. He was trying to dribble. To, he thought they were going to foul him. Throws it to Livingston. And then Livingston throws it to Iguodala. Iguodala drains the three. Game over. And uh, that was just... It's tremendous in terms of what was happening. I mean, Cousins ended with 23 points, 10 boards, six assists. Curry had 23 points. Uh, uh, Draymond Green, 17 points. Clay Thompson, 25. Uh, and But the bench, Jarepko, McKinney, Bogut, Looney, Livingston, Cook, all played. They scored 27 points. And then for the Raptors, Siakam. Now, Leonard scored 34 points at 14 boards, 16 for 16 for the line. But he looked tired at the end of the game. And Siakam only had 12 points, saw only six. So Van Fleet, another great game for for the Raptors. But uh, it was it's it's one of those. Now we're going to the next game three on Wednesday, back to Golden State, and you don't know if Clay Thompson's going to play. You don't know if Kevin Looney's going to play because he got hurt. You don't know if Kevin Durant's going to play. 
Um, this is, I mean, the training staff of Golden State and Steve Kerr in terms of fixing these matchups, it's all going to come into play in terms of what are they going to be ready because people still think Toronto's in control of the series. If Golden State doesn't have their best players, two of their best players, it's, it's hard to see how they're going to beat Toronto. But we'll see Wednesday night. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, we're here, we're on the air live on Iron Sports. What's your pick for Game 3 with Durant uh, presumably out? I, th- I presume Durant will be out. I still think Golden State comes back and wins. I think that I still I think well, I think it's going to be hard for Toronto there. I think it's going to be another situation where Toronto might get a lead. But I I think Thompson will play. The every indication that he will play. Um, but uh, I don't know if it's hard. I don't know if it's my heart or whatever. But I I just I loved how Cousins played. I think Cousins and I think Cousins in Oakland in this environment is going to have another like I could see Cousins have thirty points, fifteen rebounds. Because it, this is Cousins is playing like how. Remember when Embiid had those big games against uh, Toronto? Like I feel like it's the same thing. Like I, Cousins is an Embiid type player, and I think that Gasol can't match up against him at this time. And I think Toronto's not going to be able to handle Cousins. That's why they got him. It's one of the reasons why they got Cousins in the first place. Because some of these teams that you want to go small. Um, so I think Cousins. I look for Cousins to have a, a monster, monster game on uh, on uh, on Wednesday, and I like the Warriors to win. But it's going to be close. This series is great. These teams are fun to watch. Um, they're not they're not going down just shooting threes. It's it's great basketball. About four of my friends text me all the time. This is how I like to watch basketball. I hate Houston. I don't want to see a three point <laughs> shooting competition. And this is tremendous basketball because the teams are smart. If they give them a two, they're going to take the two. They're looking to make the passes, the extra pass. They're playing fast. I love it. I love this basketball. Breaking news here on Iron Sports. The Major League Baseball draft is underway, and the uh, Baltimore Orioles with the number one overall pick take uh, Oregon State's uh, catcher Adley Rushman. Going to be the number one overall pick in this year's draft. Kansas City is on the clock. Let's move on to the uh, NHL. Stanley Cup's underway. I talked on this show, and I think it's the kind of the consensus. Boston is, is a better team all around. If, if you went to every single aspect of their team— they can outgun a team like St. Louis. I thought teams like the Sharks or the Predators had a better shot in the West to compete. But either way, this has been a pretty good series. Um, game two was one of the best Stanley Cup games I've ever seen, uh, ending with uh, St. Louis with a beautiful overtime winner. This series, though, Ira, has been as physical as you could ask for. Um, the, the play with Tory Krug going basically down the ice, not getting the uh, charging call, and just absolutely destroying um, Robert Thomas. This has been a fun series so far for me to watch. Well, you mentioned that was in Game 1, and that was where St. Louis has been beating up these other teams. I mean, they were against St. San Jose and like, Six of their, it was like Slapshot. Now, I bring the movie Slapshot. Some younger listeners might not know the movie. It's one of the greatest <laughs> hockey movies of all time with Paul Newman. But it was like their strategy was just to injure the other teams that they have no players left. And that's sort of what St. Louis has been doing to some of these other teams. And I think they were physical at the beginning when Krug, his helmet had blown, was off. So he was his hair's flying around. And he goes down and just levels uh, one of the Blues players. It's like one of those things like, you're, like, you're done, St. Louis in pushing these other two. You might have pushed everyone else around, but you're not pushing Boston Bruins around. And uh, and you saw in this, after he did that in the second period, they outshot the, the Blues 18-3 to and had a 38-20 overall advantage and ended up winning the game 1-4-2. But you're right, that Wednesday game, I mean, both sides were just, that was just, I, I mean, it was just an amazing game. And in that second period, the Blues were, were they, they actually got tough. I mean, that one play 
where Brzezowski, uh, they, I thought it was a cheap shot. They ran him into the to the uh, to the boards. They only got a two minute penalty on it, but it could have been a five minute major. But by the second period, just total domination. But I thought the Bruins. I thought that the game was good because I thought the Bruins were totally outplayed in that game. But they hung in there and they had a chance. That's they what went they do. Overtime, and you could see the trash the goalie, Aras the goalie played uh, much better than Bennington. And uh, and I, so even though they lost the game, it was one one. You're like, wow. I mean, that you know. But then they go back to St. Louis on Game Three, and total disaster. I mean, ten minutes in the game, the Bruins score a power play. They've got that power play going that was so successful, one of the best power plays all year. And then um, they get they get two, two they had two goals on three shots. And then with 10 seconds left in the first, they score again to go up 3-0, and it was just over. I mean, they have a 3-0 lead, and they easily win 7-2. So tonight, in I guess a half an hour, we're going to get game four. And, and Boston, really, if they go, I mean, people in Boston are looking, look, we win tonight in St. Louis, go back Thursday, get the Stanley Cup, call it a day. And I think that's what they're looking for. You want to know what is a little surprising to me, Ira? Them leaving Bennington in uh, for game three. They pulled, I mean, for game four. They pulled him in game three. There's Jake Allen was their starting goalie when the season began. He had a fine season. They actually shipped Yaroslav Halak out of town for Jake Allen three years ago. This guy should get the start in game four here, if it's up to me. I know Bennington's on a crazy run, but. This is the you know a, a veteran goaltender who's got you there before. I'd be making the switch here. We're not going to see that. It should be interesting to see what happens because I think Boston now is, is salivating. They're chomping at this, and you're right. If they win this game, it's really hard to come back from three to one. I'd be a little scared. Well, I, I I thought it was weird after game two. People were giving Bimington all this credit, like he did a great job. Well, there was. 3-2 overtime, 37-23 shots on goal. I mean, clearly Boston was just not in, you know, into the game at all. Uh, St. Louis had 50 hits to Boston's 31, and the Blues had five penalties. I mean, it was just a weird. Yeah. It was it was it was a it was a weird game. But I didn't think Bimington played that great. He gave up. You know, he had twice as many shots uh, Rask had than than Bimington had. And uh, uh, but then in, in, you know, but I think that they feel like they have changed. St. Louis has changed all their lines. They've made wholesale changes. The, the, the coaches announced all these different changes, uh, but they're not changing the goalie. But it was the first time he's been pulled. He's a rookie, so it was the first time he's been pulled. They finally pulled him in the game uh, in the third period. Was it the third or second period uh, yesterday, or to do Saturday night? But uh, um, but it's like one of those things where I don't. I felt that was a weakness for St. Louis going into this, and and an advantage that Boston had. So it'll be. I think if Boston gets it, goes up two nothing. Then the series could be a. I mean, if Boston goes up two nothing tonight, this series might be over. You're absolutely right, and that's why I'm hoping that doesn't happen early because Boston does have a knack for getting on there in the first period. Before we move on from hockey, Ira, you want to know what the talk or the buzz here in South Florida is amongst the hockey community? That Sergei Bobrovsky, Columbus Blue Jackets, um, you know, routine Vezina candidate goalie, and also Artemi Panarin, uh, the right wing for Columbus ridiculous just natural goal score on top of being physical and technically extremely sound are both linked to the Panthers supposedly Panarin's already played for Joel Quenville um, when he was with the Blackhawks so this is something that they're saying in this offseason the Panthers could get uh, you know a top 10 forward in the league and a top three goalie basically out of nowhere and that would immediately put them in not only the playoff hunt but as one of the best teams in the east I would say 
Well, look, I mean, that's great. I mean, in terms of going to Panthers and the excitement that they could generate, we've talked about this before. The Miami Marlins are an absolute non-factor in the sports. No one's talking about them. No one's going to the games. It is, it is, they, are, they have the lowest attendance. Minor league teams across the country have more attendance than, than the Miami Marlins. Uh, the Dolphins have clearly set a sign that they're taking the season off. They have a nice new coach. They have some interesting players, but they really are saying we're building. We're this is a total rebuild. They're not tanking, but this is a complete rebuild. The Heat are exciting, but they're going to lose to Wayne Wade. We don't know what's going to happen. They're waiting for all these contracts. I mean, the, the, their strategy is let's wait for all our contracts to expire in the next year or two. So this is a perfect time for the Florida Panthers to take over South Florida and become the hot team. And you saw it. Look at Tampa Bay. I mean, Tampa Bay, they have a terrible baseball team. Nobody goes to their games. They're hockey games. People are buying, you know, $300, $400 a ticket to go to the game. So clearly, if the Panthers can get it right, can get the excitement going, uh, I think it's a, it's a perfect opportunity considering the other South Florida teams are just not really really into it. No, that, that, and that's a great analysis with Tampa Bay. If they put a, a good team on the ice – you're, you're going to draw fans. They draw fans anyways with the away crowd, but it'd be great if more Panthers fans were filling the seats. It's 7.33. This is Ira on Sports 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We're about 10 minutes away from Kelly Pavlik joining us to discuss everything going on with boxing. Also, Mike Ivarone, good friend of this show. He's going to try to make you some money on the Belmont Stakes. That happens at 7.55. Ira, let's talk a little golf. And you texted me as excited as you ever did over the weekend that this is the best tie. This might be Tiger's best round ever. He was, he had a lot of ground to make up. wasn't able to do it, but still, you were really impressed. Well, Tiger, he was weird. The first day, this is Memorial uh, in Dublin, Ohio. It's Jack Jack Nicklaus's tournament. It was great because he's everywhere on television. It's his tournament. It's it's great. I mean, it's great to see Jack Nicklaus and, and, and everything he's brought to golf and have this type of tournament. It's a, it was a very good field because it's it's perfectly, unlike the Honda, it's perfectly positioned in between two majors, so everybody wants to play in it, so it, it, it is good. Um, but Tiger shot a 70. Uh, it's a, a, a two-under in the first round. Um, anybody who's burning his par fives, which you like to see. You know, you want to see Tiger drive well and birdie those fives. That's what he's always done, and he's been tremendous. But then round two, he was he he played well again, but he ended up he dealt, he was playing well the whole day and double bogeyed the fifteenth with a seven, so that which is amazing for Tiger. And then uh, round three, it was the same sort of thing. So he was off the pace by nine strokes or ten strokes at the time. Uh, but on round four. I mean, he's he's teeing off in the morning. I'm here in California, so he's teeing off really early in our time. <laughs> yeah. But six birdies and 12 holes. I mean, he is, and and the point where Declan goes, he could win this tournament because he got to be the climber hadn't the leaders hadn't teed off yet, and he's now like three strokes off the lead. And you're like, well, if they have a bad round, maybe Tiger could win this. And even Jack said, I think he could come in and win it. But he looked great. I mean, he ended up bogeying it. He shot a 67, but uh, after the round, he's like, I'm geared. I'm ready for the U.S. Open. It's two. It's been two weeks in Pebble Beach. Um, he looked great, and I'm telling you, this is a weird thing. I've, I've watched Tiger play a lot. I liked how he walked. I know this sounds stupid, but he seemed to be comfortable when I saw him at at uh, the U.S. Open at Best Stage. He looked uncomfortable. He was when he was walking down. He was using his club as like a crutch. He seemed to not be comfortable. I was. It was again. It was a hilly. It was whatever. But he seemed very comfortable walking. He seemed to be swinging. They were showed the, the the slow motion of swinging. He looked great. I mean, he putted great. He he just missed. You know, he he finished ninth for the tournament. He was nine strokes back. But but uh, I still think he's. I mean, this was. 
Tiger is not playing to win the Memorials anymore. He's playing to win majors. And if he can win the Masters at the U.S. Open, that would be a ridiculously successful year. So, uh, uh, but he looked great. So, it's, I mean, he's now, I guess, the second favorite uh, to win the U.S. Open. Well, you know, we looked on. And, you know, as soon as you said that to me, I pulled up the scoreboard. And I'm like, man, Martin Keimer, he's got a, a chunk of a lead here. It's going to take an amazing performance from somebody. And we got an amazing performance from Cantlay, who um, represents us here in South Florida. I mean, I, I joke about this all the time because I think that there should be a Ryder Cup between West Palm, not just South, but West Palm Beach <laughs> golfers yeah. versus the rest of the world. I'll take West Palm Beach golfers. Like, they will win. They don't need a Ryder Cup. You just need West Palm Beach versus the rest of the world. I can't allay, I mean, first of all, it's, he's an amazing guy. He's been out of golf. He was out of golf. Tiger was out for a year with his back. Kennelly was out for two years with the back. He's only 27 years old. Uh, Jack Nicholas loves the guy. He won like a Jack Nicholas award, and so Jack's been like his mentor. And you could, I mean, Jack was crying uh, because he won. Uh, he was like, so excited about uh, Patrick. And, and he's very loved on the tour. He's supposedly a great guy. Everyone says he's phenomenal. He shot eight birdies. In the, he had eight birdies, no bogeys. He shot a 64. Um, and, and sneakingly, he's had a great year. He finished ninth in the Masters. He was third in the PGA. Um, just in a, a great win. Now he's, he's one of the fourth or fifth favorites, I think, for the, for the U.S. Open. So people are, are looking like he's in contention. Um, Adam Scott finished second to 17 under. And Spieth, who was in contention most of the week, uh, ended up shooting a 73 on Sunday, uh, finishing in seventh place at 10 under. It was interesting to note, though, who didn't make the cut. I mean, this was a good field that wasn't a great field. There was not every major golfer was there. But uh, Fidel, who's you know, played Playing great, great shot right a 77, yeah. 74, missed the cut. Justin Thomas shot an 80 on Friday, missing the cut. Phil Mickelson shot a 79. I mean, this is a day when everyone else is shooting 68, 69, 70s. He shot a 79 on, on Friday, missed the cut. Jason Day missed the cut. And Rory McIlroy missed the cut. So these are all golfers who are like, boy, they're really gearing up. They're getting ready for the U.S. Open. I mean, to miss cuts like they did and by the amount they did is – uh, it, it makes you gives you pause going to the U.S. Open to thinking that Thomas Mickelson Day or McElroy are going to have good runs at, in Pebble Beach. You know what else it gives, Ira? It gives weekend hackers like me a feeling like I might be able to hang with Justin Thomas <laughs> shooting an eighty because we could do that. You know, potentially, uh, it, it is crazy to see you know the human side of golf and issues like this, where it's like you never know any given day. And like you said, that that was a moving day, and <laughs> guys are shooting seventy nines and eighties, just crazy. Five minutes away from Kelly Pavlik joining us, can't wait to uh, pick his brain on what happened on Saturday night. But first, we talked about it when the show started. Ira French Open's underway. We got some good tennis going on. I, I'm telling you that, that in three years, uh, tennis is going to be awful. But right now, it's tremendous. I mean, you have four, you have a qu- quarterfinal, four matches. To two tomorrow, Federer and Nadal play tomorrow, and then Djokovic play, and Dean play on, the, on Wednesday. Uh, Djokovic is number one seed, plays Sasha Jarev uh, tomorrow uh, on, on Wednesday. He's number five seed. He's 22 years old. He's considered the next best thing. He's been, he's been like the second ranked, third ranked. He's from Russia. Uh, and if Djokovic wins this tournament, he's going to hold all four titles. Uh, this is going to be their, their, their record against between Sasha and Djokovic are 2-2, two and, two, uh, and uh, but, but, but Sasha beat Djokovic on clay the only time they played. So this is going to, that's a great match. The 32-year-old Djokovic versus the 22-year-old Zarev. Then you have Thiem versus Karachatov, who I, I, I know he's from Russia. It's a hard name to pronounce, but they're two really good young players. Thiem is from Austria. Karachatov is from Russia. 
Um, one's uh, themes 25, Crossroads 23, themes four seeded, uh, Crossroads 10 seeded. Um, I think that's going to be, this is going to be like when all these players, the Joker, the Dolls, the Federers, they all leave. Who's going to, these are two of the guys that people with there, they're saying these are going to, these are the, who's going to be the next number one player in the world. And then tomorrow you have Warinka and Federer. Now Warinka's 34, Federer's 37. Uh, Warinka has won the French Open before. He played Stefanos Tsitsipas, another a Greek player who's 21 and is amazing in a five-set match. And you would think in a five-set match, the 34-year-old would not be able to hang with a 21-year-old. And he played great. It was a tremendous match, winning at 8-6 in the, in the fifth set, five-hour match, uh, just amazing. Now, Federer, has, they're both from Switzerland, so they played each other a lot. But he's a 22-3 to advantage over Orinka. But Orinka has, he beat Djokovic when he was a heavy underdog. He beat Nadal in the Australian when he was a heavy underdog. So who knows? But that's going to be a great match tomorrow. And then Nadal plays Nishikori tomorrow. Nadal is the 11-time winner. He's 90-2 and, 90 and two on clay in, in, in 92 at the Roland Garris. Uh, it's going to be, you know, I, I expect Nadal to beat Nishikori, but then Nadal would play Federer at the semifinals on Friday, and Djokovic would maybe play Theme uh, or Karachas up on Friday, uh, setting up for a Djokovic-Nadal final. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be, uh, this is epic. This is tremendous. And then on the, on the women's side, Serena loses to a young American, Sophia Kennan. But people didn't think Serena's not played that much. She's really gearing the year toward Wimbledon. Uh, but you're going to have Madison Keys on one side of the draw, a great American versus uh, uh, Barty. And then a young American, Amanda Amasinova. She's 19 years old. She could be the next really great thing. She's very talented, uh, has an all-court game, fun to watch. Uh, she plays Halep. Uh, and then Sloane Stevens is on the bottom of the draw. So the eight women left, three are Americans. Uh, so that's still good. But, I mean, I just, from the men's perspective, seeing Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, I mean, you have four of the top, four, four of the eight, final eight have won the tournament. You have seven of the, of the eight players are in the top ten in the world. It's just going to be a great uh, final week of the French, and uh, I'm excited. As a tennis fan, I'm just pumped to watch just about uh, two or three minutes away from getting Kelly Pavlik on the line. You know, Ira, you said something a few minutes ago, and I want to step back to this for a second. I agree that, you know, right now with the Federers, Nadal's, and Djokovic's, this is, you know, great tennis that we're seeing from those three. But do you think that there won't be someone who steps up? I mean, I know you know this a lot better than me, but I feel like Federer didn't just pop on. I do feel, I mean, I remember when Nadal came on, he looked like a little boy, and he was playing like a man. But, you know, do you think it's going to take... You think there's someone out there right now who will take some time to develop and get a little older and maybe get to this level? You think we won't see this level with the next generation? What's your take? I think someone will come. I, I think the problem is I think it's not going to be. I think this theme, we talked about these players. The only difference is that Djokovic came on later in his mid-20s too. So maybe someone like theme, no one said 10 years ago that Djokovic's going to have 15 major titles. So I do think there's a chance that it looks like these, it used to be in men's tennis. I mean, remember Andre Agassi and Macro, these are young players that came on. And I think it's probably going to take longer for these young players to develop, but they get to play longer. No one would ever thought a player would play at Federer at age 37, Serena at 38. These are ages that players were retired. Beyond Borg was the greatest players of all time. Retirement was 29 years old. And they felt that was a little early, but playing in 32, 33 would be just, that's the end of your career. These extensions with the health, and the fitness and the nutrition and everything. And maybe it is, it, this is a grueling sport. It's very tough and it's become...
mental game. And uh, and 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 but when you see a Titsipas from Greece uh, come and play, maybe he's the one that comes on. Uh, he is emotional. I, it, you're, you're, everyone's looking for the next great player. It could be him, uh, but and there could be a 15, 16 year old player out there. We don't know about it's like the next Federer and the next Tiger Woods that comes on. So you never know, but. Um, it'll, it'll, it, it, this is just, I'm enjoying watching Djokovic, Federer, Nadal because it's rare that you get to see the three good best players of all time play at this ridiculously high level where they're competing for the tournament. It's not just some swan song. I remember at the end when Connors and McEnroe were playing, they were injured, they weren't that good, and people just came and watched them and they felt bad for them. We're not, no one's feeling bad for Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. They're winning, <laughs> they're going to win this tournament. So I, that's what's so fun to watch. It. Maybe a good friend of Iron Sports, Francis Tiafo, take the next step and be the next superstar. We would love that uh, here in Florida. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. It's time to bring in another good friend of the show. It's Kelly the Ghost Pavlik joining us here on Iron Sports. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Two quick questions for you here. One, did you give Andy Ruiz Jr. any shot in this fight before it happened? And two, why do you think it was, you know, watching this, you know, as someone who knows nothing about it, it seemed like Ruiz just had more energy the entire fight. This guy's not in great shape, but he seemed to have more stamina than Anthony Joshua basically, you know, the entire fight. Kelly, you there? No, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have that. That not- dog's barking. No, not a problem, Kelly. Um, I, I just asked, you know, it seemed like Andrew Ruiz, for not being someone you'd say is a, you know, a model specimen as far as um, you know, being in shape goes, he seemed to have more energy and stamina than Anthony Joshua the whole fight. Yeah, you know, I think it was more so than that. You know, I, I was saying about Anthony Joshua, he has, he, yeah, he's too muscular. And, you know, a lot of people were making excuses like, you know, that he was... Uh, I shouldn't say excuses because he may have been, you know, there's rumors that he got, you know, dropped and uh, a couple of times the week before the fight. There's a couple of rumors that, um, he, you know, that he, they should have stopped him or they should have let the fight go on, that they should have postponed it. There's all kinds of things coming out now, you know, on it. And, um, you know, I, I just think the whole thing was that this Ruiz is a dangerous, he's a dangerous fighter. You know, he's, um, he's not built. And he don't look the part, so it's very easy, no matter if he only has one loss or not, to be very confident going in against him. But he's a, a very fast fighter. He's a very good counterpuncher. And um, we all know that Joshua, because of his genetic build, um, hopefully it's just genetics, um, that he gets tired real quick. You know, um, when you have that much muscle, you know, it's hard for the oxygen to get through to the entire body. And the muscles actually take up all the oxygen. So... Huh. That, I think that I, I think that was a, a big part in it. Um, you know, when you're muscular like that, you fatigue quicker. Uh, and you know, Joshua, in my opinion, I just thought he was he was totally gassed. I mean, yes, he got hurt, but I think that the final stoppage of that fight wasn't from him being out of it. I think it was more so from him being so fatigued that he would have been able to last. You know, um, Kelly, I heard a lot of people saying today that. Um, Mexican boxers never stop coming at you. Has that been your experience dealing with um, fighters from Mexico? Yeah, you know, uh, they are. They're, they're rugged fighters. I mean, they come, um, you know, they actually, it's frowned upon in Mexico, I believe, if uh, they don't they don't come straight forward and take punches. Um, but you have some guys, you have, uh, what was it, Rafael Marquez, who, uh, you know, Juan Manuel Marquez, uh, Marquez who mm-hmm. was a heck of a counterpuncher, 
and a good boxer. But yeah, for the most part, you know, they come to fight. They are. They, you know, they call them the Mexican warriors, and uh, you know, there's there's no BSing around when they get in the ring. They come in, and they they uh, are gonna take one and give you three. <laughs> Ira, what do you got for Kelly? Kelly, thanks what? a lot for coming on my show. Um, and the question I have is, it, it, the comparison, I remember you're fighting against Jermaine Taylor. You're fighting for the, for the middleweight championship of the world. You get knocked down in an early round and then come back and knock Taylor out. Same thing happened in the third round, the pivotal third round. Ruiz gets knocked down, but then he, and he said, you know, but then is able to get back up and then turn that round. I mean, that was like one of the best rounds, of course, of the year, because then he turns around and knocks uh, Joshua down twice. Yeah, you know, let's not get mis- let's not mistake the fact that, you know, it was a middleweight fight, though, and that's a heavyweight fight. Um, so our conditioning level is a lot higher. Um, but, you know, I think in the third round of that one, yeah, Marie got dropped. And the biggest thing, and I, and I hate to take, I'm not trying to take you know, the, all this um, victory away from Marie because he works his butt off for it and he fought a great fight. But, you know, they were both so tired in only the third round. Ruiz got dropped, and then by the time he got up and and uh, Joshua was trying to, you know, knock him out and finish him off, Joshua was plump tuckered out. And then Ruiz, by the end of the round, couldn't walk either. <laughs> you know, he couldn't make it back to the corner. And it was only the third round. Um, so, but I just think the biggest part was that once Joshua gets tired, it's harder for his body to recoup with that minute break. Again, you know, um, when you're that muscular, you fatigue a lot quicker. And uh, I think that Ruiz, he, he uh, you know, gotten better. He, he caught up and he caught his wind and got a second win in the, in the fifth round, as where Joshua was, you know, he, he never did. And you know, what's interesting is in the fourth, fifth, and sixth. So he gets knocked down twice in the third. and then But the fourth, fifth, and sixth, I mean, I don't think Joshua did anything. Like, it was like, it wasn't like I thought Rosie's dominated, but people were like, I was with a bunch of boxing fans, and we're just waiting for Joshua to say, okay, you got, you had a bad round, you'll get, but you're right. He never seemed to get his legs, his wind, or nothing. But he, in the fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds, he just seemed like he was just coasting those nine minutes and, 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 and just waiting to get knocked out by Ruiz. I, I and mean, that, that's exactly right. He didn't, and he wasn't going to get it back either. Um, you know, again, when he when the, they stopped the fight, the way I'm looking at it, and I, and I can pretty much, if I was a betting man, again, it wasn't so much that he was hurt. I think that he was so tired, and in his head, he's saying, "I still got a lot of fight left, and I can't even stand up right now." <laughs> you know, I think that he just wanted to get out of there. I think he wanted, you know, get out of that fight safe. Um, go back to the drawing board. I think that he needs to bring a strength and conditioning coach in um, to work on keeping him strong and fit, but taking some of that muscle off where, you know, it's hard. I don't know how they would do it. Um, I would imagine cut back on the um, bodybuilding workouts and, you know, or something like that, because you can't, you can't be a pro boxer, especially a heavyweight, because it's hard for the heart to pump out all the blood as it is to a, a body that's, don't like that. That's six six, six seven, and uh, two hundred and forty pounds. Let alone two hundred and forty pounds of pure muscle. Um, so you get tired quicker as a heavyweight, whether you're fat or or not fat or or um, built. You know, you, heavyweights get tired quicker, and I think that he needs to find a strength and conditioning coach that is going to help take some of that muscle off. But you know, put him through a routine where he's still going to stay strong, whether it be functional uh, strength training 
or what, but that was a big issue in that fight. I mean, people will argue. I just think it was a matter of Ruiz came out, he, he counterpunched, he fought well with that, and he stayed away from getting caught, you know, more than what he did. And then he weathered the storm, and Joshua was absolutely fatigued and, and done. And, you know, taking nothing away from Ruiz again, Ruiz made Joshua that tired because he was able to survive four or five rounds, and he hurt him a little bit. And when Joshua got hurt, right. I mean, it, he, he, he got I guess nervous. the person that's more, besides Joshua being upset about the loss, would be Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury because they were hoping to go against a, a, an undefeated Joshua, and now that, that big payday, per se, is taken away from them. And, and I guess uh, from the, the Wilder and Fury perspective, I mean, they mo- I mean do, do you see Wilder having to say, what, what, was, what does Wilder do now? Does he want to fight Fury? And then like, where does he go from this now that that big payday against Joshua, two undefeated fighters, isn't really going to happen? That's a good question. Um, you know, unfortunately, right now, still the heavyweight division, even though you have these fights and it's being talked about, which is great, great for boxing. It's still a really weak division, though, as far as pure talent. Um, Wilder, in my opinion, everybody knows that technically he's not the best, sharpest fighter out there. But the thing about Wilder is he has such devastating power, and he finds that mark every time, too, with that power and catches people. Um, for, for Wilder, though, yeah, it does suck because, I mean, that was a, that was a huge payday. And... I don't know if the build-up now is going to be worth him getting $50 million or if the promoter's going to feel that way about paying him that money because it's not a big mega fight no more. But I think what guys like Wilder, um, you know, you still got Tyson Fury. Now you got this Ruiz. Um, I don't know how far Ruiz is going to be able to go in the heavyweight division, but I think he's going to give a lot of heavyweights problems with his, his boxing ability. So I think now it goes back to kind of like, Let's see what happens. Um, you know, let's see, put put uh, Ruiz in against a guy like Wilder or let Ruiz fight a guy like Fury. And I think I think guys like uh, Tyson Fury and guys like Deontay Wilder will fight Ruiz because I don't think they still feel that Ruiz will be a threat to them. I think it would be easier to make Wilder Ruiz than, than Joshua Wilder. No, you're right, you're right. So, Kelly, thanks a lot for coming on the show, but tell us about your podcast, and uh, and and how I can listen to it because I, I mean it's it, it, and how our listeners can 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 you know our boxing fans we have a ton of boxing fans in West Palm Beach so to let us know how we can listen to your podcast. Yeah, it's the, the Punchline with Kelly Pavlik and James Dominguez, and actually the best way to go to it is go to um, Punchline Live, and that pulls up our site and you can catch uh, our past shows, um, you know, future shows, everything else and. We also keep stories on there and, and um, updated news. So, yeah, punchline.live is the best way to go. Well, thanks a lot again, Kelly, for coming on and talking and breaking down this. The, one of the biggest upsets in, in he- at least heavyweight boxing history. So I appreciate it and, and with your analysis. And we hope to have you on for some other big fights coming up soon. Yeah, no problem, guys. Hey, any, any big fight you guys want me on, give me a shout. I'll be more than glad to come on. I enjoy it. Absolutely, we will. 7.56, it's Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel, just about a minute away from getting Mike Iavarone on the show. Ira, you know, you talked earlier about how things are pretty bleak if you're a Miami Marlins fan. 
They got a little bit lucky here in the draft tonight, though. I got They got who I consider the second-best player overall in this draft, J.J. Blade, outfielder from Vanderbilt. Got him with the fourth pick. Uh, there was a, a, a surprise pick from Kansas City Royals at two, taking a kid out of high school. But this could be an impact player, and, and you know, Derek Jeter is here to rebuild this team, and they might have got the best pure hitter in, in this entire draft with a kid named J.J. Blade. So things might be turning around. Yeah, but, you know, the problem with baseball drafts are it's not like drafting. You're not drafting Kyler Murray. He's going to be your starting quarterback in, in a few months. You're not drafting Zion Williamson, who's going to be has a zillion Twitter followers and is going to be uh, the super maybe all-star his first season. So it takes – that's the problem with baseball is that it could be a great draft, but it's not. we're not going to see these players for three, four years, maybe five. So that's the difficulty in terms of rebuilding and, and whether whether South Florida can wait for four years with the team. Uh, that's another question. No, you're absolutely right, and that's why in these scenarios I do try to get the guys who are like college seniors, so at least they're 22. Um, the, the, the young kid the Royals took is 18. So that guy you won't see for four years, easy. Hopefully you can get uh, some of these other guys at the top of the draft in, in their league in a, you know, a year or two, but you're right. It's usually a three- to four-year process. All right, it's time to bring in Mike Ivarone. He's our uh, horse racing expert, former owner of Big Brown. Uh, he comes on every time we've got uh, something going on with the Triple Crown or anything we need his help with. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. i got to tell you, looking at the odds for the Belmont, I really don't love anything at the top. I'm not saying that I'm sold on Master Fencer, but Tacitus and War of Will to me, they're not worth it at the odds they're at. What are you thinking? Well, I, I agree, especially on the War of Will. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, when we first spoke before the Derby, I didn't feel it'd be a Triple Crown type of horse this year. Yeah. And he's one of the only ones that are running in all three legs, and, and especially knowing that the last race he had a perfect trip. Uh, was able to sit inside and, and finish, but now he's coming back, you know, on three weeks, going a mile and a half. I mean, I mean he could win, but I, I think he's a play against as well. Master Fencer, I believe this is the, you know, the, the Japanese horse, and these horses, you know, coming over from overseas, typically don't do well here, but, I mean, he's third in odds on the board. Are you giving Master Fencer any shot? No, I give that horse absolutely no shot. I, I <laughs> saw too. he worked. I saw a replay of the work that he had at Belmont recently, and it was a bit of a mess. I mean, he took a bad step. He stumbled. Um, I, I'm not even convinced that this horse deserves to even be in the race. <laughs> no, I, I agree completely, and that's why I think we can make some money here on the Belmont. We'll talk more about that in a second. Ira, what do you have for Mike? Oh, Mike, thanks for coming on. Again, uh, congratulations that he had, uh, Mike had a horse, uh, uh, Lady Prancelot, win a major race this weekend in Santa Anita and uh, it was uh, I think like the second best big, biggest race of the day and a three-year-old filly so it's a, it came back it was in next to last place the entire race and in the last hundred yards made a uh, made a, a one of the fastest hundred yard dashes you could imagine to to win the race and uh, congratulations on, on their great win. Thank you thank you we've been hiring her from the second we bought her and uh as long as she stays sound, I think the, there's no limit to how good she can be. And I think next race is a very big race for her. It'll be a great one. And uh, it'll be at Belmont. And I have expectations of her running very well in there. If not, you know, I'd love to see her win it. She deserves it. Well, no, I mean, I, I was at the race. I saw her. Thank you. And, uh, it was it was tremendous. It was exciting. And, and it was so funny because there were other two other horses in the race. Uh, that were Maxim Raid and uh, and Hostess, who have both beat Lady Prancelot before. 
and, uh, and when they were warm, when they were in the stall before, they were on one side, all the other horses on the other, and it was like Lady France was like looking at them, saying, "Look, you're going down this race. Like you guys, like you're you beat me twice. I'm, you're not going to come this time." So that was it was exciting to see that, and it was a great race. But back to the Belmont. Uh, this uh, Tappet seems to be the horse that everybody talks about. Of course, it's not a horse running in the race, but it's uh, Tappet has sired three of the last five uh, Belmont winners and has three horses running in this race. Uh, pretty amazing in terms of this of Tappet being such a great sire for the Belmont. Well, it's funny. When Tappet really became successful going back several years ago, I, I had one of Tappet's best progeny. Uh, I had a two-year-old filly that ended up being the two-year-old champion. Her name was Startabound. And he was recognized as a stallion for Phillies. And fortunately for him, that's you know, not only become uh, the case with Colts as well, but he's just a brilliant sire and, and can basically produce everything, grass, dirt, sprinters, two-turn horses, it doesn't matter. And, uh, yeah, he's really stamped his horse as well. And, and I, you know, I think he's very well represented again. Um, I mean, that, it's just... And I, and I guess, you know, one of, the, one of the things is that War of the World, we mentioned, is the only horse, could become the 12th horse to have lost the Kentucky Derby, come back and win the previous at Belmont. And there's a lot of horses in this field that ran the Kentucky Derby, uh, but did not run, uh, like, like, you know, including Master Fencer, who, uh, and Tacticus. Uh, who was a favorite, were, ran the Derby, took the Preakness off, and are gunning for the Belmont. Um, so I guess, uh, what, what are you looking, how do you think this race is going to break out? And If it's not going to be War or Will, is it going to be another favorite like the Tacticus or the Bourbon, Bourbon Moor? Well, I, I certainly think Tacitus, uh is very, very live. I mean, Belmont, you know, he knows how to get him ready. Obviously, he won the Derby uh, via disqualification. But I, I think this horse had always been meant to be a Belmont horse. You know, I, I think his pedigree screams a mile and a half. I, I think he'll sit a, a reasonably better trip than he sat in the Kentucky Derby. I think War will. I think the issue they're going to have with him is how does it all set up? And my guess is that he'll be very forwardly placed. He probably won't get the save, the ground saving trip that it got in, in the Preakness. And his odds are going to dictate he's going to be probably, you know, eight to five, seven to five. And and that's just not playable. So I, I think Tacitus is playable, uh, top and bottom, and I think you can kind of spread all over the place. The only horse I would probably throw out the rest of the field is, is Master Mentor. I just don't see him um, even getting close in this race. I mean, I'd be shocked if he finishes in the top six. Wow. I mean, and then, like, Intrepid Heart people are talking about because it was third in the Peter Pan, which is, of course, run at the Belmont, and its sire is also Cabot. So, I mean, it's like you have, I think you have three yeah. half-brothers running in, in, in this race. It, it's like a family affair in terms of this. But, I mean, is there, do you see any, do you see, where, where do you see Intrepid Heart in this? Well, the Peter Pan is a tough race to figure. Uh, the track was very fast that day. It was also very speed-favoring. And I know the horse that won, uh, they've always been high on, but not at, at you know at a mile and an eighth mile and a quarter. So I think that track was very difficult to close on. So I, I think that, that benefits him. I, I think maybe that might help him coming going forward. I think the race probably he ran is a little bit better than it looks on paper. So so I think he's a usable horse. I think you know uh, both of Pletcher's horses here are usable, and you know, obviously it's his home track and. He prepares them every day. They don't have to ship. They have to walk from their stalls to the track. So, I mean, that's that's a big benefit for them. 
Right. I mean, you're mentioning uh, Todd Fletcher, who's had more wins at the Belmont than any other one running, uh, Rags to Riches, uh, Palace, uh, Malice, and Capret. Uh, one other thing right. before you go, Mike, I, I saw where this is the, the – there are two jockeys, and this will be the first time they've ever been in, in the Belmont, uh, Manny Franco on spinoff and Tyler Gaffalone on War of Will. I, I was surprised that neither of them have run in a Belmont before, uh, 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 being a jockey on any of the horses. Okay, well – Tyler uh, is an up-and-coming rider who's been, who for the most part had been riding down in Florida, and he had been, uh, you know, gaining and gaining and gaining. He picked up a really good agent. Uh, at that point, he started to, to to spread his wings a little bit. He rode for me uh, in the Shadwell. The first time we put him on the horse, he won a Grade One for us and rode the horse really well. And then he started riding more at Keeneland. He started developing more relationships like with Mark Cassie and uh, I, I think the reason he just hasn't had the, the, the Belmont or the Derby horses in the past is just because he was an up-and-coming rider and the bigger trainers were going to the go-to guys. He's becoming slowly one of the go-to guys. Manny Franco has Angel Cordero, his agent. Uh, Angel had always been very high on him, and uh, he's been riding really well in New York. So a lot of the trainers have been using him. So I think they feel comfortable that he really knows how to get around that course. So, well, I mean, the Belmont is exciting. I've been to, I think, 12 Bel- Bel- Belmonts. I mean, uh, you've been to, you're right in the area, so you've been to. I mean, just tell the listeners a little about, I guess the last question would be, uh, you know, wh- what what makes the Belmont so special? I mean, certainly when it's going for a Triple Crown, but just in general, even a year like this, when, when it's not a Triple Crown, just the excitement of the Belmont with at, at the track. Yeah, I think what makes Belmont so nice is the track is very big, and it can accommodate you know 100,000 people pretty easily. Where other tracks you feel like you're just on top of each other. So I think Belmont is nice. I think they do a really good job of building a tremendous undercard. So if you're a racing fan, it's not about just the Belmont. I mean, they're going to run some races, especially on Saturday. They run the Met Mile, and that field. Is probably the best field I've ever seen assembled in that race. And that's one of the most prestigious races that there is. And, you know, as much as the Belmont Stakes is slowly starting to lose its luster, races like the Met Mile are becoming the races that become the most supported because those are, that's what the breeders want. They, they don't want mile-and-a-half third horses. They want milers. And most of the races, you know, in America now run between six furlongs and a mile and an eighth. So the undercard is really, really good and continues to be good. So there's good racing all weekend. So it draws not only the everyday Belmont fan, but you get the regular horse people as well. So, you know, they'll probably get 60,000, 70,000. That's good. Well, like, thanks a lot for coming. You've come on before each of the races. I really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with Lady Prancelot. I want to, you know, hopefully she keeps winning and, uh, and she keeps upsetting all these other Well, horses. you have to keep going. And, uh, again, as long as, as, long as we keep winning, we keep on going, then we can't horse racing, it. triple crown season. Uh, Ira's the lucky charm here, Mike. Yeah, he's he's the common denominator. So as long as he keeps going. Mike Iavarone, our horse racing uh, insider here, owner of Big Brown. Thank you so much for popping by Iron Sports. Ira, he's always a great guest. We have a little bit more breaking news, though, before we wrap this up. James Holzhauer, uh, Jeopardy stalwart for 32 straight matches, lost tonight. Fell $56,000 behind the uh, record winner, Ken Jennings. Ira, have you been following this guy, Holzhauer? It's been pretty impressive. 
don't know what's a bigger upset, Anthony Joshua, or uh, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty amazing. I I think that uh, that that that's uh, unheard of. But people did think, not saying that I'm an expert on Jeopardy, but they felt that he it was going to be hard for him to break Jennings' overall record of uh, of the seventy, I think seventy two wins because he is more uh, risky in terms of how he bets and how he plays the game. But uh, that's tremendous. I mean, it was great for the show because boy, their ratings were up. Uh, and people watching it, but and, and it's weird. It it's found its way onto the sports. Like if you went on si.com, cbssports.com, or espn.com, they all had the Jeopardy. So that's sort of where I was seeing it. Is is they view it as almost sport, but that is a. That's a huge, huge upset. So. <laughs> yeah, he lost to a, a librarian, 27-year-old from Chicago tonight on the show. You know, it's funny, Ira, a lot of baseball teams, or at least four, have been linked to ready to offer him a job for his uh, analytical abilities. Obviously, you know sports. He's a professional gambler. So might see James Holzhauer in the front office of a team very, very soon. Ira, we're out of time. Where are you headed this week? Um, NBA Finals, the Warriors. I'll be in uh, uh, Golden State for Wednesday and Friday. Uh, it's going to be epic. Uh, this could be the last run for the Warriors against the team. It might be the last run for the Raptors also. Uh, these games are tight. It's also, But it's clearly, we don't know what's the last run forever, but it's the last run for Oracle, uh, which has been in the, the home for Oakland and for the Warriors for years. Uh, they're moving to a new arena in San Francisco uh, next year. So this is going to be tremendous. I love the NBA Finals. I love this. I, and we didn't spend any time on our show talking. We're tired. We're anybody's going. I just let me. I just love enjoying the games. I and just love lit, watching him. And then in two weeks we can talk forever about Durant and and and, and Kyrie and Kawhi and where all the big free agents are going to go. But for just two weeks, I just love watching uh, this great NBA Finals. I, I can't wait to speculate on all of that after that. And everything's going to be pointing to the New York. Knicks, if you're asking me. We're out of time. On behalf of Kelly Pavlik and Mike E. Of our own great guests, he's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.